Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with Michael Andrews, ACE, editor of the incredible animated feature, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Anyone who has seen this has to be just in awe about how something like this got made, and Mike's going to shed some light on that for us. Mike's credits include editing Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank, the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Megamind, Shrek, Shrek 2, and Shrek the Third. When you figure that each of those was probably a multi-year commitment, that is a lot of animation editing experience. Before I hop into our discussion with Mike, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing base from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Mike Andrews, ACE, on editing Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I saw it last night with a packed house not at a hollywood premiere or anything just a regular group of people that really wanted to see this movie and they were cheering throughout the film no way wow. yeah especially at the end the spidey t-rex comes out and the audience just went insane <laughs> <laughs> it's so rewarding to hear people respond that way i loved the opening drum solo montage tell me a little bit about creating a montage like that what you were given what you had to do with it, and how you teach the audience what they're about to see. That was always part of the plan to let Gwen's story start the opening of the movie. There was a roughly storyboarded version of that I began with, and we just kept building upon. I did a lot of sessions with Phil Lord. He was always just trying to push it farther and farther. I pulled things from YouTube. He got really fascinated by some of these slow motion shots of people drumming with paint. Uh, bouncing off the drum skins. I used some of that. It was a hard sequence to wrangle because then we had to hand it over to the layout department and then they came in with a bunch of shots. We were always just adding layer after layer after layer 
on top of it, the music was changing here and there because we originally did it all to a track that Daniel Pemberton, the composer, had created for us early on, but it wasn't necessarily built for that scene. As he rewrote the music and started writing score, we finally had something we could use. And animation was adding their own touches. There's a lot of shots in that sequence that are either from the first movie or from later parts of this movie. And we didn't want to show them in the same style as you would see them or as you did see them in the first movie. I was working on it from day one to a few weeks ago. <laughs> what was the total span of that time from day one to weeks ago? I came onto the movie a little over two years ago. I think it was May of 21. There was someone on before me who left the show. They had already been working on it for about a year. It was in a very rough place. When I came on, I just picked it up and hit the ground running and never stopped. People from Art of the Cut know the usual way animation gets edited. This could not have been like that. Tell me a little bit about what you're editing with beyond storyboards. We do start with storyboards as much as possible because that's the best way to figure out where you're going. It's the equivalent of the pre-production phase for us. We're helping write the movie, basically, because we're trying to come up with all the building blocks that you need just to make the story land. You don't want to kick off production too early. That's when it gets expensive. And if you want to review the whole movie and storyboards a couple times, at least, to make sure you're on the right path before you put it into production. So while the layout department is working out all the camera, we're still working on the story. Rewrites, trying new lines, trying new beats, trying to get all the emotion out of it that we possibly can before it's too late. Then it moves into animation after layout. We've talked a little bit about storyboards, but you also mentioned using YouTube videos. It seems like some of the movie, at least, is mocap. Were you using actual mocap performances? Were you using performances of actual actors that they videotaped? No, actually, there's no mocap in it. Whatsoever. There's no mocap. Wow. Yeah, the last time I ever was involved with any mocap was when I was at DreamWorks. DreamWorks had a very nice, elaborate mocap stage. It wasn't used for animation. I think the animators would have rioted if they <laughs> used mocap to take over their jobs. It was used in a very smart way on certain shows. It was actually used for layout, for creating you know, the staging and the blocking. It came in very handy for that. We did not do that on this. We did not have access to a mocap stage or anything. That's so interesting. So you were editing with storyboards until you're actually getting some kind of a layout. Explain layout to people. Once you're done with a storyboard scene, where does it go and how does it come back? When it is ready to go to layout, which it never is actually ready to go, we just send it <laughs> anyway. We work more directly with them than anyone between story and layout. Story comes in, layout goes up. We give them our cut and they go in and they start building shots. This is when it becomes production. Follow the cut, follow what shots we use, and basically set up a general layout pass of the entire sequence. The sequence being hopefully under three minutes. It's mostly just to set up camera, set up the positions of the characters, what props they're going to need, what set should look like, what angles we need. That something um, can and, move in 3D space in the correct amount of time. Yeah, exactly. We're going from 2D storyboards into a 3D space. We're getting into the real world. It's a little cruder looking than what it will look like even in the animation phase, but that just allows us the flexibility of trying to work loosely until we nail it down. I've seen layout done many different ways. Usually most shows start off by saying, we're going to do previs and we're going to give you tons of footage, tons of coverage, and you'll be able to cut all kinds of things. And the clock starts ticking and we run out of time. And then they go, no, we're just going to do the shots. I would love to have that kind of coverage. I would love to have that flexibility, but I could count on one hand how many times someone's given me actual coverage that you would get like in a live action. I just talked to somebody on a Star Trek Picard and they said their animation 
team. They're just animating spaceships, but they would do multiple angles, multiple approaching, leaving of the same action because they could. With something as complex as what you were dealing with, they don't have that time. There's this other system that's really cool called camera capture. DreamWorks had a room where you have this camera where you're virtually able to walk around the sets and you could set the angles wherever you wanted to. It reminded me of that the very first time I ever laid my eyes on Phil Lord and Chris Miller. I was watching a Saturday morning show with my son and it was like a infotainment kind of show. They were interviewing Chris and Phil. Chris and Phil made Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. They were demonstrating how camera capture works and they were doing a scene where the character was running through a house and the scene is animated as a whole and then you use the camera capture to go shoot it as if you're almost shooting a live action movie it was a very active scene you basically had to chase the character through the house and try to keep up with them they showed how the movie did it and they turned it over to the host who tried to do it and it was just a mess it just made me think it'd be a great way to work it's cheaper and it's quicker for the production team just to set up shots and only concentrate on those shots my first feature was Shrek after Shrek there was a moment where we were going to do a 3D IMAX version of the movie and we spent a year developing this thing I learned so much from that. The first thing I learned is that once we opened the screen up to IMAX, anything off the screen wasn't animated. So if it was a waist-high shot of Shrek, his legs were just dragging and twisting. They wouldn't even animate outside the film frame. All that had to be touched up to make that work. I didn't even realize, oh, they don't even bother me. It's like a Zoom call. You could be wearing shorts or you could be wearing nothing at all below there. I do have pants on. I joke. I swear. I think Avatar, they used that idea of the camera capture right. where Cameron was actively moving a camera inside of a space that had already been active. He's cutting edge of all that stuff. What about use of split screens? Is that something that was storyboarded? There's a couple of places where you split screen. I thought that was really interesting. That was often a choice made during production where we thought, oh, we could say two things at the same time. The beauty of doing something like Spider-Verse, which is comic book based, is that this is a comic book world. The cutting can be different. When you look at a comic book, they break angles all over the place. There's rarely any kind of clean continuity to it all. There's no 16 by 9 in a comic book. Any frame, any angle, you could split screen and you could put text on screen. There's the editor's notes, which we took full advantage of to try to explain some of the things the character Kobe was saying because he's spoken a very thick cockney accent things like that come in very handy this really helps us to tell the story we're just not following traditional framing and cutting so i enjoyed that aspect of it there are some really big tonal shifts including inside of a scene can you talk about managing those is that something that you had to experiment with when you were in the storyboard phase or even as you were seeing more final production stuff storyboards are usually suggestions of what things would be some border artists are incredible and practically animated for you and give you all the good some give you nice drawings, but sometimes you need a little more because we really have to screen it for the studio and for an audience completely in storyboards to sell the whole idea and to figure out where we're going. In order to make that happen with these little sketchy drawings, we have to milk stuff that you don't have the performance from a human being to actually help you. That's why we layer it heavily with music and with sound effects and we make it as much of a complete film as possible early on. Early on, we're working with scratch actors and oftentimes it's just people around the office. My own crew, I called the editorial players because they did all the voices for us and filled all the gaps. I always made the joke that we were putting out a play and I was making costumes out of curtains. Once you get the actors' voices in, you're like, okay, now we're reaching a whole new level. Oftentimes, the scratch performances are great, but they're not as drawn out or they lack the performance that the beat needs, which the actor finds. Phil is amazing at finding those moments to focus on and open up. He knows when to not overdo it. He knows when to put in the emotional beats that we need.
every time Phil would say we need to open it up, this little voice in the back of my head was like, oh, <laughs> getting longer. But the thing about Phil, he's always right. <laughs> he nails it every time. There's a couple of scenes we did pretty late in the game, and one of them is Miles comes home and has a moment with his mom. There's a little bit of a twist to that scene, but his conversation was something that we padded fairly late in the game, and it came out of a preview response where they felt they needed to feel Miles have some moment of success where he feels like he's conquered something in the movie. It is a cliffhanger movie, and we didn't want to just make people feel, oh, that was an unsatisfying ending, because what about Miles? This allowed us to have a moment of success for him. I can't even count the number of days Phil and I spent on that. It was probably like two weeks of sessions, and we just kept reworking. We recorded Jimmy Moore twice in that time period, just to nail it down. It was a rough one, but in the end, it's very satisfying. It's full of emotional pauses that all work. I was going to bring that scene up when you were talking about storyboards. Sometimes you don't even have the actors. How hard it must be to judge timings, how long you hold on a touching reaction of the mom when you're looking at a storyboard and listening to your assistant editor (laughs) deliver the line. I felt like they were all really good at pulling (laughs) off the voices. My first assistant, Erica, did a lot of the mom, and she was great. She's actually done some acting, so she was really good. We're staring at simple drawing, and it's not easy to give nuance (laughs) in facial performance. people can pull it off and sometimes all it takes is an eyebrow raise and that's where our score comes in very handy and our temp score that we worked with luckily we had Daniel's score from the first movie yeah. sometimes you're working with just scores from random movies and I was trying to stick with either our first score or other scores that Daniel had done for other movies we just fake it until we get something and everything just builds upon that from there you start with your storyboard sketch and a slap together temp score and slap together scratch and then everything is just layer for layer you just keep adding to it and reworking it. One of the things I had no clue how you could have dealt with is that the energy and rhythm within a shot changes in one shot. I have to say, of all the movies I've worked on, I feel like more effort per frame went into this movie than anything I've seen. (laughs) I feel like when I saw the first movie, I was like, gosh, I wish I was part of that. How did they do that? How did they make that movie? I thought it was so groundbreaking. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to come aboard. I wanted to see how these guys work. Phil, he has three directors, Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin Thompson. Those guys all have their own little superpower that they bring to the table. Justin was the production designer around the first movie, Kemp Powers, Good Record Soul for Pixar. He's a fantastic writer, and he was always a voice of reason. Joaquin Dos Santos, possibly the best board artist I've ever worked with. It's just unbelievable what he can do. It made our lives so much easier. And he has a rare talent that where you can board action and actually animate the camera in the storyboard for the scene between Miguel and Miles on the train. The number of times we had to make sure the layout was setting up camera in places that were as dynamic as the way Joaquin had boarded it. You think from storyboards on, everything's automatically going to get better and more interesting, but that's not always the case. Phil would see it and we'd go, what happened here? Something's wrong. We'd have to go back. And I keep everything in the timeline so I can always go back. That happens a lot with comedic moments too. You go, oh wait, why isn't it funny anymore? What happened? Then you check and go, oh, they made more of a dramatic angle out of it. So that kind of thing happens all the time. I've seen that. The storyboard has a lot more feeling to it just because it's drawn and then you get to the layout and it's like a video game. There's no emotion to that, whereas the storyboard does. They do such a great job, but their work never gets screened usually, unless it's like an action sequence. Some people have tried to make a layout where the characters are talking, but it's really not the purpose of layout. I'm not playing it down in any way. It's a very crucial step. I love working with them. Has that improved? Have you seen improvements in the amount of time you've worked in 3D on the way layout looks? 
Definitely. I mean, I already dated myself all the way back to Shrek. But it's, <laughs> back then, they were in T-poses and they were moving like Gumby. That's what I've seen. It looks like a chess match you know, right. with the characters just sliding around on a board. That's the simplest, crudest version. Over the years, it's definitely gotten better. And it's gotten to a point where I've seen layout departments show they could actually do story. And that has happened a couple of times. Let's talk a little bit about the use of reaction shots to sell story, truth, emotion. You're in the unique position as an editor on an animated film to say, I want this <laughs> specific reaction from a specific angle. Let's talk about using reaction shots. I'm a big fan of reaction shots. Some of my favorite shots in the movie are reaction shots. So there's a simple shot that I laugh at every time. It's when the character spot Miles and his father are all down in the pit where the collider was. And Spot says, you make all your stupid little jokes. And everybody laughs at them. There's Jeff and Miles just like, look at each other <laughs> and Jeff has a slip it's just the simplest little reaction and I've always loved it we have to request them often because the way things are storyboarded people tend to concentrate on what they think we should be looking at which is the person talking or whatever action is taking place so sometimes we do have to request it or some of the stuff Joaquin did on the train. There are moments where we realized we got to keep this just pinned to Miles. How is he taking in all this information? We had to stop and go, let's get a nice close-up of Miles. And it's interesting because I've done more live action stuff. You can be prompted for a great reaction shot because in the dailies, you see somebody roll their eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to put that in. But for you, right. it's, I have to think about that. I interviewed the Guardians of the Galaxy editor. Obviously, that's mostly live action. Action, the animated character of Rocket, he said, we didn't have a reaction shot of Rocket at this certain moment. And we cut the whole scene together. I thought it was great. And then the director's like, we need a reaction shot of Rocket when he hears this one line. It doesn't exist, yeah. right? Oh, You've got to yeah. think of something that is not in your toolbox. The films evolve and find their way. We watch them so many times, the only danger is we get numb to them and we're not seeing what we need to see. You always have to keep an open mind and think, I remember I'm watching this for the first time. There are times where I'll just get a sense of something missing right here. What are we not covering here? It's often a character moment of someone just taking something in. I feel like in movies, we do have that luxury. It's a luxury and a curse at the same time. We can build from scratch at all times. Times, in a weird way, our worlds are getting closer together between animation and live action because now the editorial team starts from day one on the animated movies. Or as soon as there's a storyboard to cut together, we're there and we're there to the better end. The concept of production, post-production, and editorial mostly being post-production, maybe a little bit during production. Their schedules are getting earlier and earlier too because there's so much being done. I feel like our worlds are getting closer than they were before. Let's talk about modulating dynamics. I thought that was lovely in this film, sometimes inside of a scene, but also throughout the whole film, there's these balls to the wall action scenes. And then there's these lovely moments of drama or heartfeltness. I love the stuff up on the rooftop with the parents. That's got some great emotion to it. Can you talk about being able to feel those dynamics when they need to happen, when they've gone on too long? I think we succeeded at layering plenty of emotion in this movie. And it makes me very happy because it's it's very easy for the movie to feel like it's just stuff going past your eyes <laughs> and there's no depth to it. It's not very rewarding. Phil is very conscious of emotion being the driving factor to everything. He pushed for it every step of the way. One of my favorite scenes is the scene between Miles and his mom at the party under that little water tower structure. After Gwen has left and they have a little heart to heart, he almost tells her who he is, but he doesn't, which is a nice moment. And she comes back and says, oh, you should go follow Gwen. She tells him to go on his way, but she also says, you're going into the world. Got you, Lewin. For me, it's crushing because my son is 17. 
it really hits me in the heart because my son going into the world. Miles is going into the world. I got the opportunity to see this movie last night with my daughter, who is 27 at the moment. I thought many times, I hope she heard that line because <laughs> certainly how I feel. You know, there's a great scene between George and Gwen. Gwen really comes into her own in this movie. She has the whole opening to herself. A lot of people along the way, myself included, question whether that was the right way to go. Phil was very strong-willed about it and thought we have to lay the groundwork for all the decisions that Gwen is going to make in the movie. And we kept building upon that and having that scene with her father and having the scene with her friend who dies, Peter. This all is going to add up to something. And, and it truly does. What's crazy to me is the movie is in theaters. I saw it at the local Regal. <laughs> and you said you're still working. What are you doing? It's definitely been crazy. I've had anxiety dreams about this in the past where <laughs> I've been on a movie and we're working on it as it's coming out. The good news is we're not making any story changes. What happened on Friday of the release, which was technically the first release day. Some of the filmmakers got on a bus and made a little mini tour around LA and went to three different theaters. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller got up and introduced the movie to the audience, much to their surprise. It was really fun and it was great to hang out with those guys one more time. One thing we were discovering live as we were traveling around as reports were coming in from the field, there was a lot of activity on Twitter about some mix issues with the movie. The movie starts off with a bang with a lot of rock and roll music, Gwen playing drums, and at the same time, she's trying to narrate her story. So it was definitely a battle throughout, even when I was working on it, mixing it myself on the app. And then when we got on the mix stage, it was a bigger battle because you're in a bigger space and it's more challenging to make everything read, but also maintain that energy of the music because that whole scene is about getting in Gwen's head and to carry the emotion of it. We felt we needed to keep that music at a really energetic level. It did compete with her dialogue and some people noticed that. But we noticed, which was much to our surprise, in all three theaters, we stayed just for the first minute or so just to listen to that. And we found it's a different response in each theater. You'd think they would be more standardized, but they're not. It's a wild card as to what you get. So that made us rethink things a little bit. Phil Lord was already on a Twitter mission to get projectionists to play it at 7.0 Dolby Standard. Now let's talk a little bit about the rest of the team that's involved. Tell me who else is there and some of the things that they were doing for you and for the movie. So my editorial team consisted of six people, myself, two associates, three assistants. It's actually the biggest editorial team I've ever worked with. I think five is the most I've been down. This is a new record for me, six. With a movie of this size and the amount of changes we did, it was crucial to have all these people. My two associates are Andy Levitin, who was an associate on the first movie. Chad Hoffman came in a little bit later, but he came in and was amazing. Andy and Chad do a lot of scratch voices uh, along the way and come up with a lot of their own material. And sometimes those things make it into the movie. And Andy was notorious with one role of a villain called Typeface. And he went to the line go to Helvetica, Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, dear. A, I bet he thinks he's a comic sans. I'm sorry. I had to do it. <laughs> Very good. And that's why Miles is bold. Right after. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Chet. Did a really funny thing where Spot has popped into this Lego world and caused all this destruction. As we come back into the scene, there's chaos on the streets and shut out of the line. Does anyone have any instructions for this? Which I thought was very funny. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun that they get to do that. And sometimes they end up in the movie, which is fantastic. Phil and Chris, one of their initial successes was the Lego movie. They thought it'd be fun to have this beat of the Lego world. And they certainly knew who to ask permission from to be able to do that. This was very late in the game, by the way. We were already releasing trailers. 
because we were trying to figure out what worlds Spot should go to. We had a ton of them. He pops in on like a 30s comic book world, and then he pops in on the Venom world with the woman at the counter. A 14-year-old boy from Toronto had posted, and he had recreated the trailer that we had made shot for shot in Lego. Wow. Animating Lego. He's using a computer, much the way that the Lego movies did, but not actually physically doing stop motion. And it was genius. We found out he's 14 years old. His name is Preston. And they contacted him and said, would you do a segment for us for the movie? Oh my gosh. It had been storyboarded and we gave him a cut. He went crazy and did his own thing and sent it back. It was just adorable. We were like, how do you give a 14-year-old notes? But we did it in the kindest way possible. We just wanted to nudge him in certain directions, but we really wanted to give him the freedom to do what he wanted to do. And the Daily Bugle sign, the D gets blown off by a spot as he comes through because he comes right into the area. A taxi cab crashes on the street. And when you come back to the scene, when you hear that line that Jeff did, there's like police and ambulances. And it took us a while to notice this, but there's a chicken standing on top of a person laying in the street. And the chicken is stealing their money. So you mentioned your two associates and now you've got three yes. assistants. Uh, weirdly, I had a all Italian assistant team. I had Erica Scapelli, my first assistant, and Nina Lentini, and Freddie Ferrari. Fantastic <laughs> names all. The one thing I made clear to my crew from day one, just with COVID and everything, was I was not going to force anybody to come to work if they didn't want to. Sony did a fantastic job at setting everybody up at home with the ability to remote into their machines in their offices. For the most part, I had the virtual crew around me. Freddie Ferrari, I only met in person about three weeks ago. <laughs> so they were all fantastic. Erica did an amazing job running the department and she had to handle so much in making this movie happen. You sent along some timelines. It's very different looking at a timeline for an animated film. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through both the video tracks and the audio tracks. There's a V1 track that I take claim to inventing, but I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure everyone's done this. So I like to say that I was the first one to do it. I'm sure it's not fact, the V1 track is a fake clip that just identifies what sequence it's in, that makes it very easy for me to know where I'm at in the movie. And the reason I do that is because I like to work in reels very early. The moment I can, I like to build in reels and just work big instead of just sequence by sequence, because I feel like you can get trapped in sequences and spin for a while. It's better to just think about where are you going next and what comes after that. You and I would have to compete to see which one of us did that first, because I've been doing that for a lot of years, usually with pages. Pages because I used to work more in shorter form. And so I would do pages. If somebody is asking me about page five, I can go right to page five because it's only seven or eight oh, pages. I would put a placeholder clip, which yeah. let me know where each page started so that okay. it was much easier to find where I needed to jump to. Yeah, that's very smart. Great I mean, minds think alike. <laughs> Scriptwise in animation, it's a little more arbitrary. It's not a good guide for me. It's great to look at an entire reel and jump anywhere I need to go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do it by sequence or by tentpole moment. Markers are always great for that, too, and I'll throw those on to help me through. On top of that, we have storyboards, which often take up many tracks because we have to do so much layering. We're always cutting and pasting and creating shots out of thin air a lot of the time. So those pile up. I usually leave six tracks or so for that. Then I try to leave a clean track for a layout, which is the next phase. Animation comes up top of that. And what I end up doing, and what you'll see from the timeline, is I try to collapse at some point. This 
movie was a little harder to manage in that way, just because we had so much going on towards the end, which was usually the time I started organizing a little bit more. After that, lighting comes in, and we just keep stacking. The comps come in that go straight to the DI, and they'll stack up on top so that we can compare those easily. Like I was saying before, with superimposition, just make sure all the frames are there and everything you need is there. For those who aren't familiar with lighting, they animate, and they don't really worry about how realistic the lighting looks. So there's an animation pass. Everybody's moving properly, but it doesn't look nice. It's all about the characters, their movement, their speaking. The lighting is like the look pass. It's like cinematography. Instead of exactly. sitting under fluorescent lights, somebody actually does something yeah. cinematic. Animation is sitting under the fluorescent lights. Lighting is when they bring all the mood and atmosphere and the smoke. Is there anything else above the lighting layer? There's just a mask and a filter that adds shot information, it takes all the metadata and it applies it to which version of the shot it is. It tells you the date. It tells you who's working on it. If you want more information, you just turn on the mask. I generally didn't really use it. Audio-wise, I maintain about 30 tracks. I just do mono and dual mono in stereo situations. I have about six tracks of dialogue, more or less sorted by character. And we use color coding on the clips so that we know what is production dialogue, what is scratch dialogue, four tracks on the bottom for music. Because you're still using left-right mono tracks for music? Two tracks for like dual mono for all even if it's ambience effects or whatever. I just found it convoluted. I tried doing a mixture of mono and stereo tracks one time and it just bothered me. I came up on that very quickly. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I was going to show you a couple of samples of timeline. So you see an earlier version where it was mostly in the story still. One thing I discovered when I was looking at them, our first reel used to have much of the second reel in it. And I realized, oh, we really expanded that story for Gwen. She became the first reel entirely on her own. Even when we did that, we realized people are going to know what's going on with Miles. We included as much reference to him as we could throughout that first scene in the drumming. And then she asks Miguel, do you go anywhere with that watch? And that idea was planted just to say she wants to go see Miles, just to keep him alive. In the movie that people are expecting to see him in. There were things that were you know, earlier in the movie. He does a little talk up on Miles Morales, and it was just a talk up introducing himself. The thing I love about Phil and Chris is they never want to do the expected. When they're talking to me about coming on to the movie, my first thought was, wow, this is a lot of Gwen to start the movie off with. I soon realized that these guys are very smart. They're not doing what you expect, which is here's Miles, here's what he's been doing. They pushed that off, did a whole cold open with Gwen, got into her world, set up everything that's going on with her that comes into play later. It's one of those things that I realized after the fact was very smart. A very clever thing that Phil came up with was instead of just having Miles do a straight talk up of himself, then introduce Spot, then have him fight Spot in three consecutive sequences let's make them all one. If you look at the numbering of the sequences, they're even out of order, and it's because we mix things up. That's so interesting editorially. Michael, thank you so much for filling us in on this movie. The editorial is amazing, and I really appreciate this deep dive into an incredible feature. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Mike Andrews, ACE, for joining me on Art of the Cut. 
Thanks to Nathan Blakely for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Out of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.